Welcome to Focus on 2025. I'm Michael Moore in Singapore, and with me are my two partners, Chris Beaumont in Japan and Chris Riley in the United States. Focus on 2025 helps business prepare for the opportunities that will emerge by 2025. And it's named for the critical five years that started with the pandemic and will define the next era of the global economy and business strategy. The other thing is that actually focus on 2025 is built on 25 years of unique cross-cultural experiences and, and collaborations. Uh, Chris, uh, Chris and I have worked at varying points in our careers and in different capacities uh, in London, Tokyo, Portland, New York, uh, Paris and Singapore. Uh, so in this episode, uh, we thought we would put the focus on transnational collaboration and co-creation um, because today, as we've talked about in previous uh, podcast episodes, today's markets are not global in the old sense. They're transnational, uh, economically connected markets that have individual characteristics and cultural uniqueness. So we thought we would share what we've observed uh, in terms of the biggest influences on in our lives, um, how the world was like when the three of us moved overseas in the mid 80s or early 90s, um, what some of the most famous, famous global brands we've worked on, uh, what are the common traits, how the nature and importance of branding changed, um, what have some of the technological developments changed in the way that people are working over that period of time, and then what are the implications finally for uh, businesses in 2025, based on our experience of having worked in very different countries with different companies and in different categories. So let's get straight into it. When the three of us moved overseas in the mid 80s uh, or early 90s, I mean, the, the original definition of sort of East West was the Cold War and the Berlin Wall. Uh, global supply chains were embryonic. Google and Amazon had yet to be uh, started as businesses. So why did you, Chris Riley, choose a career overseas? I don't know about you, Chris, but I think Mike should answer that first. Absolutely. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Go for so it, I'm going to bat that back to you and then, then follow up. All right. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in Scotland, which in a typically northern European sort of Calvinistic environment, where if you were working too hard, you you couldn't enjoy life. And if you were enjoying life, you weren't working hard enough. So I fell in love with America at the age of 20, just because it was the complete opposite. It was positive. It was high energy. Uh, and really, finally moving there at the end of the 80s, I got a much bigger perspective on business and brands that I would have ever had uh, by staying uh, in uh, in one place, which was the UK at that time. And ever since then, I've kept moving, whether it's to Japan or back to the States or to France or to Singapore. And it just provides this incredible uh, global global view that I feel very privileged to have. Chris Riley, what about you? Well, it's pretty similar. I mean, I was started my career as a high school geography teacher uh, who wasn't a very good teacher, actually. Um, but my interest was geography, and I found in advertising... Uh, the advertising industry and the research industry an opportunity to go and travel and see the world. And there was a young guy, it was the 80s. Uh, I felt similarly about the UK as you did. And I just took the opportunity to go global so that I could go to meetings in Milan and Amsterdam. Uh, I didn't realize I was going global at the time, of course. I thought I was going to Europe. 
um, that did things like forget my passport and all that kind of good stuff and then ended up in the United States. I have a master's degree in American political history. So I was always attracted to the United States um, and like you fell in love with America. Um, but um, very much as somebody who was always inspired, like my father was a geographer, really, he was a customs man and um, have been happy doing this kind of thing ever since, understanding people and places. Yeah, Chris Beaumont, you and I first met in 1991 in uh, Tokyo when you moved out there. Uh, what was your motivation for, for developing a career overseas? I'm not sure whether I had a motivation to have, develop a career overseas, but my first multicultural experiences were around the age of 11 when I represented England at a children's international summer village where there were 14 different other nationalities there. I learned to play ping pong properly. A bit later on, my academic and consultancy careers gave me numerous international opportunities. Um, I would say they were pretty Anglo-Saxon opportunities. And I came to the sharp end when Dentsu bought the agency I was at in London, CDP. Um, and at the same time, um, Europe was about to approach the single market and the French were against the British apples. The Italians were looking into sausages and all sorts of things. And I was asked to go to Japan. And I went to Japan because it wasn't America. It wasn't Switzerland. It was outside my comfort zone. So I think the, the key question is I'm actually from Yorkshire and I'm nosy, but I like to say that I'm curious. <laughs> I, I like to say that I'm curious. So the key question for us all is why did we stay? I stayed because although I've still got the attention span of a gnat, I've been privileged to be in Asia almost 30 years when it's been changing tremendously. And it right. is a region of so many different cultures and it's been a real privilege. So why, why are you staying overseas? I, for me, it was, uh, I, I'd, I'd always wanted to go to the States. I mean, it was as simple as that. Uh, it was something visceral that, that, that made me want to go there. And once I got there, uh, as I said earlier, I mean, I think you, you see uh, the world from a very different perspective. I got offered a job in, in Japan. So at that time, uh, London, New York, and Tokyo were the three main centers for the communications business. And, uh, you know, I think that Japan was the most humbling experience. It really teaches you uh, to really understand how local cultures um, think and behave and operate. And they, the, co the common sort of the, the, the US and the UK being divided by a common language, you don't have that issue in Japan because it's so diametrically opposite. And the, right. the need to really understand that culture is, is uh, you know, it's paramount. It's absolutely paramount. Very, very humbling and rewarding experience. Chris Riley? I would, I would echo that. I was going to say there's something really, um, really, really important about being humbled. And um, I mean, like both of you, I've spent a lot of time in Japan working for Japanese people, Japanese countries companies sorry and and i would describe the experience as exciting and humbling it kind of forces you to pay attention to the details of people and culture and learn from people rather than just about them which was i think the turning point in my particular journey was this recognition that the west is very arrogant it goes you know you're sent off to a country you go learn about teenagers in tokyo right uh, there's nothing, you can't really, you can do that, but it's superficial and stupid. But when you begin to think about learning from, like you as an individual are showing up 
not because you're better or because you're powerful or whatever you're learning you're there to learn from the people that you work with and that grows you grows your experience and um makes the world that's why we're positive i think i think the three of us are united by this extremely positive view because we've had this experience of working with people who are different who have different cultural well, values yeah I, I, and i think that sort of just just building on that when we've had the privilege of working on some of the most famous global brands uh, both uh, separately and together uh, often across multiple cultures and countries and, and you know staying with J japan that in fact was our first collaboration for the three of us um back in 1996 i think when uh we were sort of given the challenge of helping nike um make the the brand and just do it relevant uh, to that market it was a it was a period of tremendous explosive growth for the business they'd gone from something like 70 to 700 sales we were in the space of two or three months during the summer of I think, 1995 1996 uh, and it really forced everybody into listening to the markets i mean you, you guys were both involved in that you've got your own recollection recollections and perhaps on other uh, companies and brands too well, the common traits that I've found is that the great brands connect with the consumer. And while Nike may have had explosive growth, the connection the brand had with the consumer in the US was quite different at that time with the Japanese consumer. It was not connected to the athlete that is Japan. It was connected because of its product innovation more to the leisure industry. And that was something that had to be addressed in communication terms so that um, I thought what was really interesting was the challenge of bringing alive just do it and that notion in Japan. It makes you think about old pond and the frog jumps in and the sound of water, the haiku. That's perhaps the most famous haiku. It's certainly the only one I can remember. But it means that people are uh, in Japanese communications. There's a virtue in understanding and blending in and creating harmony. So the brief for the woman's soccer ad was to recognize that they were to be used in sports. So it was to dirty up the Nikes. But when you see yep. the adver advertising, you see the harmony between the women playing football and being champions at their sport and the calligraphy. It's a wonderful diversity um, example of communications that Japan should embrace today. Work, working for Dan Wyden, who wrote Just Do It, and he wanted things to be provocative. He felt the brand had to provoke thinking and feeling. So on the one hand, that's the calligraphy and women playing the sport was harmony and it was about Japan, as you say. On the other hand, we were presenting women in a very different way to the way they were typically presented in Japan. So there was this kind of really interesting balance between the culture, the originating culture of Nike, which is American, just do it, and the culture of Japan. And if you look at uh, the decisions Nike made during that period of time, they were running this kind of balance between who, we are, who are we in reality and how do we relate in, in a meaningful way to people who are very different to us. And I thought that was why it was so exciting and then from a business point of view, you're exactly right, Chris, the client totally understood that being popular because you were being fashionable was not a strategic position for the business. Being popular because you were understood and appreciated for what you did and believed in was a long-term strategic perspective on the brand. 
and I think uh, that form those formative years were were pretty exciting and and I personally learned an enormous amount uh, from from that experience I think I also um, learned, uh, learned a lot from yeah. another US brand yeah. IBM and ThinkPad um, at the time when ThinkPad was launched every other Japanese computer manufacturer was talking about footprint, speed, weight. And you knew that those tech specs would actually be improved. And IBM with ThinkPad did some communications with a lady who was going outside of the normal environment and writing and thinking. So they were expressing the, a sense of mobility. The ThinkPad was actually designed in Japan to look like a bento box and the mm. black black case made it immediately recognizable but that track point ball was also iconic the red i think it was designed by uh, richard sapper um but somebody in ibm in the mainframe computer said we couldn't have the red dot because that was the emergency off switch button for all mainframes but we somehow managed to communicate that and <laughs> and, and, the, and the thinkpad the thinkpad in japan where it was only the tv in the world that was used the premium uh, brand, and it became the market leader. And it was the most profitable part of the IBM ThinkPad franchise at that time. Yeah, I mean, you know, we did, uh, over, over on our side, we did the Microsoft Windows 95 launch, which also came to Japan. And we worked very closely with people in Japan. And just to riff on that, we, we hired the Rolling Stones to do Start Me Up, right? And it was based on the start button. And all these software engineers are going, but it's also the stop button because uh, <laughs> you close the computer down using the same button. So it's that same thing of figuring out um, how you solve those problems. I, I was on the end of the brief that you, you sent out for the, the launch of Windows 95. Uh, a few of my uh, colleagues in, in the agency in Japan at the time thought we were going to advertise a travel agency because they couldn't understand the strap line, where do you want, where do you to, want go? to go today? <laughs> They thought it was much better for a train company. We, we've worked on obviously a, a number of uh, different categories and uh, different brands uh, globally. But uh, Chris Riley, you made the move to the brand side uh, quite early on uh, when you moved to Apple. Um, so what, what was your experience of, of uh, working with that business at a global level? It's, it was super interesting because on the one hand, Nike is a lot of storytelling and some product innovation. Uh, and it's a, an interesting balance in that the storytelling is super important for people to understand the innovation and the storytelling tends to be about use. Uh, you go to a company like Apple, so apart from all the obvious stuff about the best CEO that's ever walked the earth, uh, and you discover that the storytelling is about the product. So it's, I used to say, um, it's like the inverse of Nike, and yet Apple really, has, really admired Apple. Uh, Nike uh, because of the quality of storytelling but uh, our job was then to explain and get people engaged with products and their use rather than create context for those um, products so it's very very different but very exciting uh, super amounts of control from the center lots of new technologies about managing assets around the world but that same fundamental which is we, we were from California we even had endless debates about the fact we would claim we were from California. 
but actually trying to make these products useful and helpful and meaningful to people from very different backgrounds and cultures. And yeah, technology and is less culturally dependent than sports. So the way an iPhone is used in China is not actually that different from America, whereas the context of sports is incredibly different around the world. So you learn this kind of uh, stretch between those two points. So, so to, to, to that point, I mean, the, the three of us at different times had, uh, or together had worked uh, with, uh, with Coca-Cola at a particularly critical time uh, for that business when it was going from being very much, as you, you said, sort of command and control uh, in the sort of early mid nineties to really deeply understanding local uh, local cultures um, and making that connection much more uh, explicit uh, to, to the brands. Um, maybe Chris Riley, you can talk about sort of your experience with, with India and then Chris Beaumont, yours with, uh, with Japan. Well, we did the Widening Kennedy relaunch Coca-Cola in India with a campaign about the color red. Um, and I, we also did a thing called For the Fans, which was for Coca-Cola corporates and the Olympic Games and sport. And I think we were at, working with the client at a moment of really significant transformation, which was previously to be in a command and control, Atlanta-based, Americans know everything kind of organization. And it was transitioning to a global organization with an Australian CEO who was, who was very, very adamant that uh, his experience was that the regions had never been listened to and now they were going to be listened to. So the whole culture of the company was becoming genuinely global, or as we would now describe it, transnational, where insight and understanding from local markets, as we used to call them, uh, ascended. And instead of imprinting yourself around the world in a kind of hegemony, you were beginning to reflect and engage and participate in culture in all its uh, kind of myriad forms. And the Coca-Cola experience we had in India was just beautiful. It was one of my favorite assignments from that client. And in Japan, I think they really recognized what the Japanese people needed. First of all, it's not a question of culture. Japanese people spend an awful lot of time outside of their homes. Coca-Cola has the biggest network of vending machines, well over 1 million. So it's the biggest retailer if a vending machine is, is a shop. Japan's culture is safe. Japan's culture is clean. So vending machines are clean. Vending machines do not get destroyed, robbed, or anything else. So it's an ideal distribution system. Japanese people do not like fizzy drinks. I can remember doing some work. They would actually pay the same amount for a, for a 150 mil can of Coke than a 350. Why? Because that was the right portion that they wanted. And they didn't want to throw it away. They didn't want to create mm. a mess in their environment. So what do Japanese people want? Well, it's a culture of tea. Um, it, it's also therefore led to Coca-Cola not becoming a fizzy drink company, which would be about 90% smaller than they are in Japan. Um, they became a ready-to-serve beverage company. They have billion-dollar brands in tea, whether it be English tea, Chinese tea, Japanese tea, I worked on a blended tea where we created a new added value category, Soken Bicha, healthy, beautiful tea. It was a damn good product as well. <laughs> Georgia Coffee um, is one of the biggest yeah. coffee brands. Um, it comes in a can. It's for the salaryman who hasn't the time. In winter, they buy two cans. 
to keep their hands warm. So the culture of Japan and understanding how people spend their times, their moods and their occasions, there is a beverage just on the corner for you to get from Coca-Cola in Japan. It would not be able to do it in many other countries like that. So really good at adapting to the culture, not just the market economics or the market itself or the market structure, as we used to call it at BBDO. In, the, in India, um, part of it was that we used the, the, world, the Cricket World Cup as the anchor to this kind of relaunch. And that was uh, in Pakistan and Sri Lanka also. So you had this phenomena where we had uh, Carlton Chase from London, who was Indian family kind of guy, his family had emigrated from India. Uh, but the music on the spot was Nusrat Feta Ali Khan, who is a Pakistani devotional singer, probably one of the most important cultural icons Pakistan has. And if you think about those two countries in conflict and then look at the unification through common, common ideals and art, uh, then that was another uh, significant part of that experience that Coca-Cola kind of brought into my world, which was the ability to rise above some stuff and present cultural ideas that were very compelling. Yeah, I mean, I just, it, it, it's, it's fascinating because I think core to uh, much of this is the, the way in which work uh, and how we work has changed over the last, well, certainly over the last 20 years, if not even just the last five years. Um, you know, we've, we've talked before about the fact there's a new urgency for all business that accelerated interconnectedness is creating new narratives and reshaping markets. Um, you know, previously there was no, you know, there's no, there's, sorry, there's no physical boundaries today. The, the technology has become, if you like, the machines of the industrial age. You know, it's not so long ago that it would take days uh, or certainly hours to get a, a response if you were uh, communicating with your colleagues between, uh, you know, Australia and, and the US. Um, the, the question really is, what will be the consequence of this sort of, you know, smart technology going forward? I mean, we've, we've sort of lost this ability to have uh, the, the sort of precious thinking time, um, uh, which is to some extent compromised uh, productivity in certain organizations. Um, what, what do you guys think will be the consequence of this uh, going forward? And given that we've worked uh, in a number of very different countries with different companies uh, who are competing in different categories, you know, what is the impact going to be on leadership uh, and, and how is it changing? So Chris Riley, you want to, what's your thoughts on that? Most of the time, Mike, let's face it, all that thinking time you've just referred to was wasted back in the day. It's not as though we had deep thinking, philosophically, you know, philosophically brilliant individuals who, oh my God, I've got three days before I hear back from the Shanghai office, I better do some thinking. They weren't, they were going out and drinking That's or whatever they were doing. So I think there's a myth here. And, and the myth is that somehow technology has reduced our uh, our thinking time. In fact, it's increased our thinking time, but we continue to waste it. So um, when I first started in this business, it took a lot of time and quite a bit of money simply to get information. 
Well, it doesn't anymore. Uh, we, we can get pretty much all the information we need pretty quickly, uh, thanks to modern technologies. Therefore, from my perspective, my job has had has less time gathering information and more time thinking about the information. But what's happened uh, within business, it's been somehow mixed up with productivity gains, which never actually materialized, and that we now have to do fast decision-making rather than taking time to think. Uh, my friend, Peter Schwartz, who's the head of strategy at Salesforce talks about this a lot. If you ask him, what is your job, Peter? He goes, I help people think. And you know what? They don't give themselves enough time to do that. So I think that the benefits of these technologies and this interconnectedness that everybody knows about is it offers us the opportunity to think together. And we need to take that opportunity and uh, quite often that opportunity is missed because instead of thinking about something, you're wanting to decide something. Uh, and that's why I believe so many decisions are weird and superficial and broken and productivity hasn't really increased the way you would have imagined it should. Chris, well, what was your, your thoughts on developments and, and how did they change the way we've been able to work and what will be the consequence of smart technology going forward? Well, smart technology can give you time to think if you can create the right environment, because at the end of the day, the best resource is your human resource. Um, also, we need to think about the new perspectives that we can get on the motivation of consumers and their behaviors, because just as we've got access to information to do our work, they've got access to information to make their choices. So I think we have to be much clearer in how we present ourselves as businesses so that people can see the clarity and and what the people what a company is standing for um so i think it comes back if you're running a business to how do you lead and there's never been a, a time when a leader needs to have strong ethics mm -hmm. even if you've got technology you need to be able to self-organize you need to be able to provide clear goals and direction for your team, which hopefully is multicultural with different perspectives so that you can co-create, perhaps even multidisciplinary as well, because I think technology creates a need for multidisciplinary work. It will be global, so it's not about our intelligence, it's as a leaders, it's more about our emotional quotient and creating a sensitivity and empathy for what makes different people tick. How do we create team? How do we become global? How do we create cross-cultural cues? And how do leaders of today and tomorrow manage that, that rich talent? So I think leaders have to do the right thing. Managers do things right. So first of all, my leaders has to be clear on their strategy, but equally they should be able to make things happen. And they should think more about the future and more about tomorrow's talents and build for the next generation. Because I think one of the biggest concerns for businesses today is how are you going to attract and retain your human resources? And how are you going to think as though you understand the East? Because leadership will have to embrace, you know, the fact that the world has pivoted and growth, certainly in the next perhaps five decades, will come from this part of the world in Asia. Um, and that means a complete shift for everybody, frankly. Um, I think it's really exciting. Um, yeah, 
And, and I, can I just pick up on that? Because you said something that was going through my mind at the same time, which is Peter Drucker said, this is the art of doing the right thing and doing it right. Doing the right thing is vision. Doing the right thing is making ethical choices. Creativity tends to gravitate towards the ethical rather than the non-ethical. Um, and doing it the right way um, is not necessarily prescribed anymore. And I think having worked for Dan Wyden, who would say, hey, you're here to do your work, not our work, right? So here's where we're going. Here's a vision. This is the problem we need to solve. How you solve it is your own creativity, is your own mode. And having worked also at Apple and being one of the many millions of people who just think Steve Jobs is God, um, is he was the same way. He said, this is the right thing to do. This is what the company is going to do. Um, uh, and then he left it to the organization to figure out how to do that. He was interested in getting it done. And so management, as you're saying, Chris, the, the people who are doing the day-to-day -day work, in my view, some of the hardest work are the people figuring out how to solve the problem. Whereas 30 years ago, uh, the, uh, you know, how you solve the problem was prescribed. Right. You had to go through the following process. And today you don't have to do that, particularly in a transnational context uh, where people think differently. And therefore, you've got to take advantage of the different perspectives and different approaches people have. Um, so I think that the leadership is about communicating in an inspirational way what is the right thing to do. And that decision itself is one of the most profound strategic decisions a company makes and then allow the company to figure out how to do it the right way. I think it's also an important lesson to understand that creativity and effectiveness are not in conflict. They are completely aligned. Yeah. Creativity, are completely moves aligned. creativity moves yeah. people, it moves organization and it moves markets. Yeah. And that is effectiveness. Right. And I think I've been often somewhat upset when I've had to find two different groups of people arguing that they're fundamentally different. And it's, yeah. it's very good that you talk about the fact that they are absolutely going in the same direction. It's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge um, for, for, for businesses, clearly. And, uh, you know, having this focus on, on 2025 and the opportunities that will emerge by then uh, and the need to be very positive um, is absolutely critical. I mean, in these uncertain times, decision-making can be improved by focusing on the, the, the twin challenges we've discussed about trust and the need to simplify the, the complex. Um, I guess, you know, my own thoughts is that leaders in business uh, must constantly ask themselves, you know, how can ethics that create trust be managed across culturally diverse markets. Um, and really, uh, just to, to, to summarize, I mean, how many businesses and institutions are prepared for such a transformation? And that is something we will continue to discuss on our focus on 2025.